Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. The Brooklyn Nets are a monster. I mean, if you don't like superstar teams, if you don't like guys coming together to try to win a ring, you probably already hate the Nets. And then that level of dislike is only growing with each game because after blasting the Celtics out in the first round, sending Danny Age packing, making Brad Stevens quit coaching, they're now doing the same damn thing to the Milwaukee Bucks in the second round. And the thing about that is it was not supposed to be this way. The Bucks swept the heat in the first round. And if anybody had exercised any demons in the first round, it was the Bucks and not the Clippers. Milwaukee was, t- Milwaukee was now tournament tough, battle-hardened. They were going to take on the Nets, and this time they were going to be ready. And not that anybody's rooting for injuries. But the Bucks' job got that much easier when James Harden left Game 1 a few seconds into that game. And yet somehow the Nets still win Game 1. All right? A little surprising, but whatever. Maybe they were running on adrenaline and some emotion after they lost James Harden. Or maybe it was Blake Griffin going for 18 and 14. Or the fact that the Bucks missed a ton of shots. Whatever it was, it was not going to happen again. The Bucks were going to make their adjustments. Then they were going to come back and game two would be a totally different story. And of course it was. A completely different story. Brooklyn 125, Milwaukee 86. Like, holy crap, you want to talk about a hospital job. You want to talk about a hospital job on national TV. Brooklyn did not just beat Milwaukee in game two. They humiliated them. They snatched their souls. They carved their heart right out of their chest, showed it to them, made them eat it. If you thought Milwaukee was going to capitalize on James Harden's absence, you were wrong. Completely wrong. Because Brooklyn came out and immediately jumped out to a 36-19 lead at the end of the first quarter. And as I tweeted last night, they had every bit the look of a team that could win it all, even without the beard. They came out, they punched Milwaukee in the face, knocked him down, proceeded to stomp on their head, and it just kept getting worse and worse. Brooklyn led by 49 at one point. 49 in a playoff game against a team with the two-time defending league MVP and in a game where one of their own MVPs didn't play at all. I mean, if you're putting up those numbers, Harden can just sit on the sideline, sucking down gigantic smoothies, and then pick up his ring in a few weeks. And what about those adjustments that the Bucks made? I'm not exactly sure what they were, but if you're losing by nearly a nickel in a playoff game, I'm going to go ahead and say that those adjustments did not work. If your adjustments leave you losing by half a hundred, then you're going to need to adjust those adjustments, especially when Griffin is getting loose and doing things like this. Similarities in three-point shooting. Oh, Griffin! Griffin with his second stuff of the night, and it leads to a Bucks timeout. And Brooke- Blake Griffin has found the found the youth here in Brooklyn. You remember when that dude could not even jump over a piece of paper like five minutes ago? 
This dude looks like he can jump over cars again and print posters. Hey, Blake, man, I know you're feeling it, and you do look great. Just don't go ruining it by breaking your hand on some intern's face again for some stupid reason. Just a reminder. Thing is, this guy's not just dunking on guys. Somehow, someway, he's actually holding his own against Giannis defensively. I mean, who saw that coming? Answer, nobody. And it's not like it's just a matter of Kevin Durant being unreal and dominating everybody and going for 50. I mean, the guy is unreal. And he was dominating everybody, but he only went for 32. Of course, he did go for 32 by going 12 of 18 from the field. In other words, you're not going to find an easier 32 ever. Not when he's hitting 66% from the field and 66% from the three. And it's not just a matter of KD getting a few open looks and knocking them down. He's working guys off the bounce as well. He had the freak on him outside the three-point line, put the freak through some paces, and then blew right by him for a bucket. But this for the walking distance, the performance. There's Durant to the rim that hits the reverse and ends up on the floor right by the stanchion. And Mar, this man, it's not even fair. Handles, great shooting, can finish. Brooklyn, they go hard, they go hard. Again, we're talking about a seven-footer doing things like that. Like, in another era, he's banging with Wilt in the post, but in this game, he's taking guys off the bounce. And if you think that Kevin Durant isn't feeling pretty good and pretty confident about his game right now, check out this on-court interview afterwards. Tomorrow will mark two years since you initially injured your calf. I know you worked your butt off to get to this point, but did you ever think you'd be this good? Is that a real question? Of course. I mean, yeah. what, what you want me to say to that? Of course well, I, I mean, did. It's pretty impressive what you've been able to do. Thank you. I appreciate that. But, I mean, that was two years ago. I'm looking forward to just getting up tomorrow and going to practice, watching film, and, and, uh, and seeing how we can get better. But... You know, I appreciate that, but, you know, that was that was too long ago. All right, well, I'll come up with some more real questions for you next time. Thanks, <laughs> Kevin. Love. <Mark. laughs> Quote, is that a real question? Is that a real question? He practically went Rex Lee on that. Yeah. Except Kevin Durant did it after a legendary game, and Rex did it in the middle of a decidedly non-legendary interview. Yeah. Well, is that a question? Is that a real question? Is that a real question? Except Durant's not alone. The Nets have a split line. Check this. A split line of 50, 44, and 91 in the postseason. As a team, right, they're hitting 50% from the field, 44 from three, and 91% from the line. 50, 40, 90 is a legendary club. You have to be an incredible shooter and scorer to get in that door. The members are one-name guys like Larry, Dirk, Steph, Kevin. Oh, and the only four-time member, the guy who's coaching the Nets, Steven, Jay, Nash, OC. So you've got to be at that level to get in that club as a player, and yet the Nets are doing it as a team right now. It's freaking absurd. Who cares about your defense if you're hitting those numbers? I'm going to go out on a limb right now and say that if the entire Nets team goes 50-40-90 the rest of the way, the entire Nets team is leaving with a trophy. In fact, all the trophies. What I'm saying is it might be time to throw some respect to the Brooklyn Nets because they're not just good. Man, they're scary good. 
But more importantly, they're better than everybody thought they'd be. I mean, maybe you don't want to pose that question to Kevin Durant because we saw what he does with it. But the fact is, they're not supposed to be this good, not this quickly, and not with those personalities. I mean, let's be real. KD, Kyrie, The Beard, these are three pretty unusual dudes, except it's working, and it's working really well, like stupid well. And yes, all this does come with the caveat that all Brooklyn did was hold serve. And yes, I know a series doesn't start until a team loses on their home floor. And losing by 39 is really the same as losing by one. Blah, 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 blah. Right. Except all those cliches, that's all for a normal series. Nothing about this feels normal. The Bucks haven't just lost the first two games. The Bucks have lost their identity in those games. They had turned themselves, or so we thought, into this tough, hard, battle-hardened team over the course of the year. Except none of that is showing up when they need it. None of it has shown up so far. In fact, they look completely lost right now. They only committed 12 fouls last night. Now, I'm not saying they need to be out there going Rick Mahorn on everybody if they can't win. But feel free to put a hand in somebody's face. Feel free to put a hand on somebody's face. Committing 12 fouls is either a sign that you dominated a game or guys were blowing past you all night long. And in this case, it is the latter. Not only do the Nets not fear the deer, they don't even feel them at this point. And Milwaukee better change that fast. Like, I know Chris Middleton is going to shoot the ball better. I know Drew Holiday is going to have a bigger impact. I'm just not sure any of that's going to matter. This feels like the start of something really scary. And not just for the Eastern Conference, but for the entire association. I'm not saying you're wrong if you hate these guys. I'm saying chances are you're going to hate them a hell of a lot more than you do right now pretty soon because it seems like it's going to get worse. And it seems like it's going to get worse because they're only going to get better. And again, they're doing it without James Harden. Is that a real question? Of course. Yeah. I mean, what, what you want me to say to that? Of and no, I'm not going to pose the question of are they better without this guy? I'm saying they're dominant without this guy. A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online so any small business could be a driving force to create change or build an empire. We know old ideas aren't cutting it anymore, so we're calling for a new generation of thinking, your way of thinking. So whatever you have in mind that will help make a different future, find everything you need to get started at GoDaddy.com. Because the future isn't decided yet. It's up to us to make it happen. Start different at GoDaddy.com. Greg Berhalter. Greg, it is so good to have you back. How are you? Hey, Jim. How's it going? Good, good. Greg, what a wild night Sunday. That game against Mexico, I think, had a little bit of everything. You had a red card for a coach. You had multiple shoving matches. You had a penalty scored in the 114th minute, a penalty saved in the 124th, and so much more. Before we get into all those details, Greg, I want to ask, when you look back on that match, what are the moments or maybe the emotions that stick out to you the most? Well, as you mentioned, all the events that happen in the game, and, and that's what makes sport beautiful. You know, just all these different storylines happening within 120-minute game. Um, you know, what stands out to me is, is for a young team, you know, this is the younger, youngest lineup we've ever played in the final, how poised we remained and how calm we were, you know, no matter what happened. We gave up a goal in the second minute of the game, which, which you know, doesn't happen normally and you know the guys just hung in there and they were resilient and kept working and we fought our way back into the game 
And then as all the craziness is happening around with the fans and the, and the players and the referee, our, our guys just stayed really calm and were able to, um, to get the win. We're talking to Greg Berhalter. I certainly want to get into that chaos and the craziness that happened. And I was going to say to you, given the youth of this team, how significant it was for a team that young to start and maintain its composure in a final. And you did answer that. You know, from the outside, Greg, it feels like this is a team that really loves each other and will really go to battle for each other. You're obviously much closer to it. Does it feel that way to you? Do you feel that bond within? You know, these guys are warriors. And, um, you know, it's great to be a part of it when – when we got in the huddle um, before overtime, before the overtime period, you know, it wasn't me that was leading it. It was the players. And they just got everyone together and said, guys, listen, this is it. We're going for it. And, and that, was a great, that was a great step when, you know, the coach can sit back and be part of it and the players actually take ownership in what's happening on the field. And, you know, it's, again, having a really young group, it's impressive to see that type of leadership. We're talking to Greg Burhalter. Greg, the start of the match got off to a pretty challenging, kind of a rocky start when Mark McKenzie's ball off the back was picked off. Tecatito Corona scored inside the first two minutes. What was going through your head in that moment? Well, you have a game plan, right? And the game plan doesn't account for that happening. So it was, you know, right away we had to kind of change our pressure, change how we were going to adapt to the game after two minutes. And, you know, and give Mark McKenzie a ton of credit because he hung in there. He's a young player, first time playing in a final like this. And after making a mistake like that early in the game, he hung in there and actually had, a, had an excellent game. So, you know, it's, it's good to see the resiliency of him and, and the team in general, just how we responded. Greg Berhalter is joining us. And then Greg Mexico appeared to score again to take a 2 nothing lead in the 24th minute, but it was wiped away after a VAR ruling. And then three minutes later... Gio Reyna scored. I want to get into Weston McKinney's dominance in the air in a moment, but how impressed were you with the way Reyna handled the pressure of that moment in a final against a rival at the age of 18? It's insane to think about it. You know, these guys are all playing at a really high level in Europe, but what I told them coming into camp is these CONCACAF games are nothing like they've experienced in Europe. Um, you know, just a different level of urgency, different level of physicality. The game is a lot more chaotic than, than the games they're used to. And to see how our younger players handle that, you know, particularly Gio, to step up in a final and play that well, you know, is, is really impressive. Greg Berhalter joining us once again. And then you lose goalkeeper Zach Steffen to injury. Ethan Horvath comes in. Mexico stores, scores. Takes a 2-1 lead, and again, you can see where a young team maybe might crumble, but McKinney scored just minutes later. How huge was he throughout the game, but especially in the air? You know, he was named best player of the tournament, and in his performance in the final was something that was something to behold. You know, he got his head on four corner kicks, which is extremely rare um, to happen in one game. You know, tons of distance. When you talk about the amount of ground he covered throughout the game, it was equally impressive and and you know it was an example of a guy just taking over a game and Weston had a really strong performance that night there's so many things happening that night I'm trying to get to all of it Greg Berhalter joining us <laughs> then you go into overtime Greg the insanity goes to another level Christian Pulisic goes in the box no foul was called but then it was called after review and Christian delivers a stone cold penalty when you're the captain when you're the face of U.S. soccer how significant was for him to come through in that moment you know, again, it was another another one of the storylines of that game. Having your captain, who just won the um, Champions League the week before, um, have a penalty in overtime, and, and to to put it home the way he did is impressive. To step up, you know, that goalie's good on penalty kicks, 
and he and he was um, you know he was ice cold in, in scoring it. So you know that's you know again it was another storyline of the game, and it's a really really strong statement from Christian at that moment. Well, there's more. Greg Berhalter joining us. Yeah. Like, if that were the end of the drama, right, that'd be something. <laughs> and it would still be one of the most remarkable games ever. But then a few minutes later, Mexico awarded a penalty after review. What's going through your head? And as that penalty was awarded, and then Ethan Horvath comes up with that massive save. You know, again, so uh, the beauty of sport, your goalie, your starting goalie gets injured, the, the backup goalie comes in, um, he makes a couple good saves in, in um, regulation, and then he gets this moment, you know, where normally goalies don't save penalty kicks. And, you know, we prepared for this. Our, our, um, our goalkeeper coach identified um, where, the, where the taker was going to hit the ball. He gave, he gave the signal to the goalie, and, and Ethan executed. It was still a really good shot, and Ethan made an unbelievable save. And, you know, it's to see the reaction of the team and how happy they were for Ethan. That shows that the group is tight and the group is in a good spot. We're talking to Greg Burhalter for a few more moments. You know, for all that excitement and for all the competitiveness, there were some ugly moments, including the game needing to be stopped due to some offensive chance and the American players being pelted by objects after the penalty. I understand that you can only control what you can control, but what was your reaction to some of that? It's just trying to remain calm. You know, I think that in terms of the chance and stuff, it has no place in the game. And although it's disruptive to the game to stop it, I think it's absolutely the right call. And, uh, you know, I applaud CONCACAF for taking those steps. I think, you know, we could even do more to ensure that doesn't happen. Um, and then, the, you know, again, the pelting and all that stuff, it's not, you know, it's not part of the game. You know, players shouldn't have to subject themselves to that. And they shouldn't have to put their, you know, their health at danger by playing a soccer game. So, Greg, Sunday's win, concur, by the way, Sunday's win was the first trophy for U.S. soccer since 2017. You've got a number of guys on the team who have won their trophies for their club, but how important is it to be playing for a trophy with the national team and to be the ones raising that trophy at the end? Yeah, I think there's two, two uh, important steps in this. You know, the first thing is that we are a young group. You know, this is the youngest team we've ever played in a final. Um, the second youngest was in 2019, the Gold Cup team we played. But the, these guys need to learn how to win together as a team. So that was an important step. The other thing was, you know, this is the eighth time we played Mexico in a final, and this is only the second win. So, again, now you have a young group making a statement, you know, and, and saying this is, this is our time. And now it's about sustaining that and continuing to grow from here. Hey, Greg, to that point that you've played them eight times and that was only the second time there's been a win. For those who are just getting their first taste, our viewers, of the rivalry on Sunday night, how would you describe that rivalry over the years? It's great. It's hard to describe. I mean, when you think about all the games we played against each other and how these games unfold and, like, you know, yes, the game we played on Sunday night was a typical U.S.-Mexico game. Anything can happen. You have to be prepared for every scenario and all types of craziness in the games. Um, you know, when you have presidents calling you, wishing you good luck, you know, I remember that when we played, in the World, when we played them in the World Cup and the red cards and the physicality. And, I mean, it's, these are intense games. And, um, again, it's part of the beauty of sport to have rivalries like that. All right, so finally, you've got Costa Rica tomorrow night, and then you've got a really busy summer coming up. What are you looking to see tomorrow night? That, that's a great question. So we purposely scheduled these three games in seven days to replicate a World Cup qualifying window um, where we're going to have to do that. And for us, it's about now, how do we respond after an emotional high on Sunday, right? How do we get back on the field and play with a level of intensity to win a soccer game? 
because we know in World Cup qualifying, you know, you're going to play on, on Thursday, Sunday, Wednesday, and no matter what happens in those games, you have to be prepared for the next one. He is the U.S. men's national team head coach coming off that huge win over Mexico. Another big opportunity and challenge coming up tomorrow night against Costa Rica and, of course, a very good friend of this here radio program. Great, great job. Really well done. Great to have you back on. Thanks for making time for us, and good luck tomorrow night. I appreciate it, Jim. Good catching up with you, bud. So let me drop some stats on you. Two out of three men are going to experience some form of hair loss by the time they're 35. More than 50 million men in the U.S. suffer from male pattern baldness. And there are only two FDA-approved medications that can prevent hair loss. Keeps offers both. So let me talk to you about Keeps. Keeps is offering a simple, stress-free way for you to keep your hair. Convenient virtual doctor consultations and medications delivered straight to your door every three months, and you do not have to leave your home. And low-cost treatments start at only 10 bucks per month and keeps offers generic versions. On top of that, you get discreet packaging and you get proven results. Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of the competition. Prevention is key. Treatments can take four to six months to see results, so you want to move fast. Act on it right now. If you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash Rome. Get your first month of treatment for free. You want to jump on this right away. That's keeps.com slash Rome. Get that first month free. Once again, keeps.com slash Rome. All right, so I got a quick question for you. He had a question for me, and now I've got a question for you. Do you want to be on national television? And you want to do so in the easiest way imaginable. Just go ahead and marinate on that for a moment. And then I'll come back to it in a second. We are now 17 days and 13 shows away from the 27th version of the Smack Off. Yesterday, if you missed it, Alvin DeLauro debuted, premiered his annual main event promo. And it was a monster. Arguably as good as he has ever done. Now, there's no guarantee I'm going to drop the needle on that thing again today. But if you're looking for it and you missed it, you can find the entire thing right now on my Instagram page. The handle over there is the same as my Twitter handle, at Jim Rome. If you missed the Smack Off promo, go to my Instagram page, at Jim Rome. I keep telling you, follow the IG feed too, because I'm populating it with good content. And some of the content that you cannot get anywhere else. Content that doesn't work here. Content that does not work on Twitter. So we're getting closer and closer to the smack off every single day. While the event is a tradition itself, there are other traditions around the tradition, right? Like the smack off odds from the man himself, Stephen H-Town, a.k.a. Stucknut. The Stucknut. The nut is a tradition, Quick word on Stucknut. And I don't say this enough. My man Steve, that is your name, right, Steve? Just kidding, nut. This dude's a legend. He is a legend. I mean, he really is. We're talking about a super fan to the show who, as I mentioned earlier today, probably knows more about the show than even I do. He's like our own personal Wikipedia page, keeping audio archives on just about everything that happens around here. He cuts it up, he labels it, he posts it for the masses to consume and talk about. And here's why I really, really appreciate the nut. You'd think that a guy like that would be a combo of weird, annoying, entitled, 
overbearing, looking to get paid, big-time nerd, stalker, weirdo. Man, he's none of these things. The nut is none of these things. Just a really good dude who's done a really good job at keeping the conversation going off-air for the diehards of the program. And frankly, I respect the ever-loving hell out of that. Thank you, nut. Man, thanks for everything. What's not to love about a good dude being in charge of the biggest and best unaffiliated fan page of the program? So, Steve, shout out to you, my man. You were Reddit before there was Reddit. Anyway, I mentioned Stucknut because the nut has posted his annual smack-off odds. And these are always a topic of great conversation. Always a topic of conversation every single smack-off season because they make one or two people at the top of the board really happy and about 20 others really pissed off, including Rick in Buffalo, who called back in 2019 as soon as he saw the odds right before smack-off 25. Well, I saw Stucknut posted his smack-off odds the other night, and obviously that dope knows nothing about the show. He's got those two Canadian lames going off at 10 to 1. I wouldn't touch those hacks at 100 to 1. And I couldn't believe Caleb in Green Bay opened at 5 to 1. That's a bigger stretch than that doughboy trying to squeeze into a pair of size 48 Levi's. Maybe you should just bring your mom on again this year, fat boy, and she can apologize for being such a failure as a parent. Rick, one of a dozen callers who has brought the stuck-nut smack-off odds from the internet to the airwaves. Hell, in Alvin's most recent promo, you hear a clip of Mike in Indy bitching about them. The reason the players care so much about them is because they are published by somebody who knows the show better than anybody, so the players know that the odds are accurate. You know what I'm saying? Normally, you see a line, and the the line is reflective of how many people are betting how much money on what side, or maybe it's a personal bias. The reason people get so pissed is because they know that this guy knows. Essentially, the odds are like a preseason top 25 coaches poll. Or a list of the power rankings that drop in training camp. It's not the objectivity that makes everybody mad. It's the subjectivity. Except that this guy knows what he's talking about. Right? So why don't we take a look? Keep in mind, these odds in absolutely no way affect how I or the XR4TI judge the event. Don't worry about RIT. I don't let him vote. All right, you can play along, old man. Mm. I just like to talk about them because they give me something to talk about, right? And this platform is a little bit bigger, not necessarily better, but a little bit bigger than stucknut.com. And you know me. I'm here to dump gasoline on the smack-off fire every day until the 25th. And what? You think I'm going to handicap the thing myself? I can't do that, right? There is your inherent conflict of interest. I need to be completely objective. But this guy's got his own point of view. So again, this is for entertainment purposes only. This in no way impacts how I see the event, how I judge the event, how I hear the event. This is just a guy with a point of view that knows a hell of a lot about the program, off to the side, posting odds, just like any of you could. He just has a bigger platform. So... 
Having said all that, there is your disclaimer. In no way does this color how I see or hear anything. You should know that. No surprise here, but your co-betting favorites are Brad and Corona and the defending champ, Lef and Laguna, both of them going off a two-to-one. Now, that sounds about right for a couple of dudes who have evenly split each of the last six titles. Right below that, you've got Benny and Wisco, last year's third-place finisher. There's some value there, four-to-one. So you want to talk about respect. Check out Benjamin getting 4-1 to odds in the three-hole, coming into his fifth smack-off, and I'm going to say there's still value there. That's not a bad number at all. Right under Benny, another Wisconsinite. Caleb in Green Bay, 5-1. to Rick in Buffalo, 5-1. to So Stucknut's top five betting favorites are from Cali, Wisconsin, and Buffalo. Let me remind you right now, neither Wisconsin nor the state of New York have ever won a smack-off. Moving down the board, Mark in Hollywood, Shawnee, both 6-1. to one. And this is where you can see how and why the players start to get pissed, right? Mark and Sean are both former champs. Hell, Shawnee's won it five times. And they're both looking up at three guys who've never won it in Benny, Caleb, and Rick. Now think about the nut. The Nut's been at this a long time. The Nut plays it pretty straight. I don't think the Nut's out here hot-taking it in bleep, right? But isn't that interesting? A couple of guys that have won it, what, six times between them? Looking up at three guys who've never won it. Even further down the board, at 7-1, to one, you've got two more former champs, Mike and Indy and Victor in NoCal. Now, I don't know if Mike's odds are what they are because you have to factor in the possibility that he doesn't show up, or if Mike's odds are what they are because we've only heard from him once in the last 24 months, and that's true. Either way, somewhere, Mikey's pissed. Whether he does something about it or not remains to be seen. Then you've got Mark in Boston. Oh, and looky here, Jeff in Southfield going off at 8-1. to one. I like both those guys a lot, but I see the nut working. Not a lot of experience for either of them, and the results are borderline Canadian so far in their young careers. That said, each of them has the game to cash that 8-1 to ticket. Then you got a couple of more legends. Aya Frady and Jeff from Richmond, both 9-1. to I mentioned value earlier. You want to talk about some real value. How about Aya Frady? 9 to 1. Jeff from Richmond, 9 to 1. 9 to 1 on a couple of former champs who recently had great appearances in 2020 and had a good time doing it. I have it on good authority. So there's some value there. You know, think of those guys, and I don't want to say they're fat and bloated. One of them is. Just kidding, Jeff. Think of those guys. Love you, Jeff. All good, brother. Think of those guys like as hefty. They're dangerous, man. They could still win it all. Even if you think they can't. That's what people said about less Hefty. And then Hefty did what he did. I'm telling you, I'm not going to lie. I do love seeing the legends get some respect a couple of decades after they each started calling the program. Matt in Vancouver, 12-1. to 1. Yeah, I don't know about that. No disrespect, Matty. Listen, nobody wants to see Canada do better than I do. 
but it's hard to ignore the past four events. These asinine, stuck-nut, smack-off odds. This 40-year-old loser has done nothing but record your content for 20 years and put it on his own website, and that's somehow an accomplishment for this virgin. It's pathetic. All right, so now we've arrived at the first true controversy off the smack-off odds. The stuck-nut, smack-off odds. Not that, but this. Stuck-nut... He's got Cal in Vegas at 13 to 1. 13 to 1. Yeah, I don't know if you have a beard, Steve-O, but if you do... I'm going to rip that beard off your face and make you eat it. It's not so much the odds. It's that Stucknut has Cal in Vegas looking up at Matt and Van, Vic and NoCal, Rick in Buffalo, and Caleb in Green Bay. I'm not saying that the nut is wrong. I'm not saying that the nut is right. I'm saying that Cal is going to be pissed. The nut just put 15 callers in front of Cal. 15. And knowing Cal the way I know Cal, he's going to threaten to knock all 15 the hell out and rip beards off their faces and make them eat it. I'm going to rip that beard off your face and make you eat it. So let me quickly hit the rest of the board. There are seven golden ticket holders right now. Tyler in Edmonton leads the class at 15 to 1. Paul's dog bringing up the rear, 22 to 1. Damn, Steve. You trying to die on Dog Hate Hill with Hawk? Here's what's really great about this board from the nut JT the Brick, Ira Craig. Jason in Fullerton, Jeffrey Detola, and Jim in Fall River are all longer shots to win the smack off than the damn dog. Pretty awesome. So you have all that. Scattered in between the golden ticket callers and the mutt, you'll see names like Silk, Dan in Denver, Gino in San Antonio, Terrence in Sierra Madre. Man, Terrence, I'm here for you still. Again, Terrence, all you have to do is call in and claim a golden ticket. Now, knowing you, Terrence, you don't even know what a golden ticket is. Somebody should dial this guy in. Terrence, you are still welcome to partake, but you have to claim the ticket. There you have it. Your 2021 smack-off odds, courtesy of the front page of Stucknut.com. If you have a problem with those odds, good. I hope you do. It's not my issue. The point of me spending all that time on that is to generate some conversation. I hope you've got a problem, and I hope you've got a take on that problem, and I hope you air it out. Speaking of on the air, remember when I asked you if you want to be on national TV, here is your chance. We are bringing back the smack-off prediction videos. Hey, you thought that I was going to say that you had to be a part of the field. No. We're bringing back the smack-off prediction videos. What that means is, if you want to call your shot, if you want to predict the winner of smack-off 27, if you want to be on TV doing it all, all you have to do is film yourself and send it in. Grab your phone. Shoot a 20-second video telling the jungle who you think is going to win smack-off 27. You can talk junk on other smack-off callers if you want. Just make sure you give us a winner. Do what you want, but keep it clean. Do what you want, but keep it under 20 seconds. Do what you want, but make sure you call your shot. Also, one more thing, film it horizontally. And one more thing, did I mention, make it clean, make it appropriate. It is daytime national TV, 
Yeah, I know that you heard me on a stream, live stream last week, get loose. That was there. This is here. We can't do that here. This is daytime national TV. We are not airing anything that crosses the line. No swearing, no smoking, no drinking, no inappropriate clothing. Keep it clean. Keep it legit. Keep it tight. If you can do all that, send it ASAP. Here is your address. Smackoffvideos at gmail.com. Smackoffvideos at gmail.com. We will be airing these on CBS Sports Network. Coming back from our commercial break starting this week. Get to it. Get after it. This is a metaphor for your business's journey. Sometimes it feels like the world is throwing everything it has at you. And to succeed, you need someone to guide you through. That's what Dell Technologies advisors do. They have the tech advice to help you navigate whatever challenges you're up against and get you safely to where you want to be. For advice on solutions like XPS 13 laptops powered by Intel Evo Platform, call an advisor today at 877-ASK-DELL. Sandra Shoffley joins us. Sandra, it's good to have you on. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Good to have you. So you're coming off an 11th place finish at the Memorial. Overall, how you feeling coming out of the weekend? How you hitting them right now? Pretty good. I uh, Really good, actually. You know, I, I think I, I pretty much played or finished as poorly as I could have based on how I hit it. So um, feeling feeling good going into the U.S. Open. So let me ask you this. In that first round, you broke out the arm lock method on the greens. What was the thinking that went into that change? And then how did that feel? Yeah, that was that was sort of the my talk of my team, I guess. Uh, it, it was new for me. I have used it for um, two days leading into the memorial, and I figured – I feel like it gives me a, a bigger advantage. So I figured I'd roll the dice that week. And um, I think my putting stats were pretty, pretty solid for the most part, even though I, I feel like I didn't really make a whole lot of putts, but um, I'm probably going to stick with it through to the U S open and um, use it as long as I can until, you know, they ban it. Xander Shoffley joining us. In fact, it's kind of interesting because you went into the Memorial ranked in the top 10 in strokes game putting. So it wouldn't seem like you needed to do anything at all to shake it up or make a change. So, I mean, I know you touched on this, but what inspired you to try it? Was it just a matter of wanting to see what all the hype and all the fuss was about? I had a, a, a tour rep was yes, for starters. And I had a, a tour rep uh, uh, from Callaway. He was making a putter with a grip on it and I saw it you know us pros like to tinker around and sit in the van and kind of hang out and I saw it and I was like hey can you build me one of those and so I finally got around to trying it out funny enough just prior to leaving the memorial and um, I worked with my putting coach uh, you know we put on a machine that sort of shows uh, your launch conditions your ball roll your face angle at impact and all these things and I started to realize how much more consistent I was with this lock thing anchored into my left arm and um, I, I'm not really a big uh, uh, liker of, uh, or a proponent of change, um, but uh, my my and neither is my coach. No one on my team likes to change anything, especially you know when I'm in the top ten in, in, in putting, uh, for that matter. But uh, we figured it's kind of a no-brainer. We got to roll the dice on this thing and see how I do. And so that, with it being my first week and not even using it for you know, two days, uh, it, it kind of worked out nice. Yeah, I can appreciate that. Xander Shoffley joining us. You know, going into the memorial, I thought you said something really interesting. You said, quote, I think this whole underdog role is probably why I've been successful. And it's always important to play with a chip on your shoulder. But at the same time, I think it might be the reason that's maybe holding me back in big moments. End of quote. It's a really interesting statement to me. What do you mean by that? I, um, 
it's fine. I miss my, you know, I don't miss a whole lot of cuts. And so I missed the cut at the PGA, even though I shouldn't have. And it got me thinking a little bit about, you know, just a classic reflection and failure. Um, and so whenever someone messes up in sports, you know, they always talk about how they can learn from their mistakes. And so I, I try to take a step back and actually think, of, you know, that's such a common phrase used and I'm not trying to just, you know, say, say words to say them. And so I was trying to think of, you know, what am I actually learning from these situations? And, um, you know, I had a lot of time to reflect and was able to speak with my dad, you know, shortly after that. And so I, you know, I, I got a few books to read, um, to help me sort of in this process. Um, but what I mean by that is sort of my dad sort of, you know, programmed my brain to work a certain way as a kid to, to, you know, you, you have to work for everything you want. And so, and, and work your ass off for that matter. And so I've had this mentality my whole life and, I'm always chasing and um, I'm chasing, I'm chasing. And, and as soon as you get to the top of the leaderboard, you're no longer chasing, you know, there's no ghosts in front of you to chase. You're, you're, you're leading the pack. And so I think my mentality has to change when I'm in those moments. And so I'm trying to learn how to either stay more present or find keys or triggers or words to keep myself present in those moments. Um, because I'm so used to, you know, being like a bloodhound, there's people ahead of me, I need to go get them. And, you know, most of my wins have come from behind as well. Same mentality. Right. But, uh, anytime I've been leading a tournament, it's, it, it's different and it's new for me. So I'm actually trying to learn from those situations. That is such good stuff. Such good stuff. I'm dying to know, like when you picked up a few books, what have you been reading of late to help you with that sort of thing? Yeah. I mean, I figured I'm not much of a reader guilty. Um, <laughs> I've always, I've always told myself I'm not a great reader, but I figured the first thing I'll read is a book on how to learn before I read any other book. So um, I read a book called Limitless by Jim Quick. Um, he's sort of, you know, a renowned brain coach. And it's literally a book on, you know, uh, speed reading is, is a section in there. Uh, he talks a lot about flow state uh, and, and, and sort of how to learn how your brain works and, and what triggers your brain and, and certain things like that. And everyone learns a little differently. And so I'm, is it like aside from golf this was literally just like i i want to you know become a better reader so then i can take in more more knowledge as i read more books so can you have you learned to trigger flow state or do you just have to hope that it happens when you need it most yeah flow states i actually just i got a i just got another book from amazon on flow um i'm gonna read at some point here but flow state's a really interesting thing um you know i, I don't know much about it i'm speaking sort of you know i guess in, in lay terms here but sort of you have you know you have a little bit i tried to enter flow state last week at memorial um you know you struggle of course you're you're nervous you're anxious your fear your fear of failure kicks in and then your sort of subconscious or unconscious mind and attention takes over and everything becomes easy and that's sort of that flow state that these books and you know psychologists or scientists refer to is when your 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 unconscious mind takes over and things become really easy and so you can apply that to any part of your life and job and so that's sort of these sort of states that I'm trying to enter in while I'm competing. That's it. That's why I asked. I think we're all looking for that. Xander Shoffley joining us. So you mentioned the U.S. Open with each day. We're one day closer to the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines. The U.S. Open is always going to be special no matter what. But how much more special or significant is it when it's played in your own backyard? Yeah, it's a dream. You know, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't a dream. Obviously, it's weird. Um, the dream was to compete in it. Now the dream is to win it. Things change quickly. Uh, maybe I didn't have lofty enough goals when I was 15 or 16, but um, that was, I think as soon as the venue was announced, my dad and I were sitting on the couch and 
we're watching, you know, a golf tournament probably together. And we saw that it was a venue and, you know, our goal was to, was to get into the tournament. So here we are, you know, a week away trying to win this thing. So um, it's still a dream of mine, you know, the dreams change slightly, but uh, it's still really cool and, and really special for, you know, my, my team and myself. I want to ask you about Highland in one second. I just want to ask you one thing about Phil Mickelson, because when he won the PGA championship, he gave you a lot of credit because he said that last year you guys played at the farms golf club and that you beat him three straight rounds. He said that he told his wife, quote, I don't know how I'm going to beat this guy. He's probably playing the best of any player in the world right now. What do you remember about those rounds? I was kicking his ass. <laughs> um, oh, man. Yeah, because he wasn't playing great. And <laughs> what I remember most is I, I was playing really well. And I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't mean to Phil. Obviously, he's, you know, one of the greats ever really cementing himself in history with this last win. Not that he even needed it. But I remember since I'm on this whole learning train, I remember how he was asking me so many questions. And I'm sitting there and my wife's a five-time major champion asking me questions, you know what I mean? And so obviously in his mind, he thought I was playing some of the best golf in the world and he just wanted to know what I was thinking. And so, you know, thinking back now, I'm, I'm like, holy smokes, you got this 50 year old guy who's more motivated than, you know, most kids out there, which is shocking. And, and he's just as obsessive and so passionate about golf that, you know, it was something, his level of motivation, you know, pushed him through such bad times that he had on the course to, to winning. And so, his self-belief is, is second to none, and uh, I'm not surprised that he won. I think a lot of people are statistically where, what he's done, you know, all this crap leading into it. But for the most part, he's not surprised. You know, I think if you got him in a quiet room, I don't think he's surprised he won either. You know, that would have been so cold-blooded if I had said to you, what do you remember about those rounds? And you just said, I remember kicking his ass and left it at that. Except, no, except the response was very thoughtful. <laughs> I know, I know. So, and it was. I'm glad you answered that the way you did. So, you're working with Highland and the Highland Share Your Swing Contest. To lay this out for me, Xander, what is that all about? Yeah, it's a really cool contest. Um, the Highlands, including my dad and I, like we referred to, my dad's been my only swing coach my entire life. Um, through June 20th, um, Highland, my dad, and myself were all, you know, uh, hoping all golfers of all skill levels. Um, post, you know, one minute or less video, depending on how comfortable they are with their swing. You know, you post it on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or YouTube. All you have to do is hashtag Highland Contest, and Highland will select 10 finalists from there, and then one video will be selected in the end, and you'll receive a personalized uh, breakdown of your swing uh, with my dad and I sort of trying to coach you through it, and, you know, hopefully we can find your X factor in that moment. You know, it's really interesting about that. Like, he was your swing coach, and when you were growing up, your dad was really serious about making sure that you did not see your swing, and as you point out, he is going to be involved in this project. He's going to join you and give feedback on the swings. So how do you think that's going to go? Yeah, it's funny when you say it like that. It is true. Um, he was very against me seeing my own swing, and um, I think, you know, things have changed now in terms of my knowledge of the game and my knowledge of how I swing the club to where he's not too worried. I think he's still worried at times that I get a little too analytical. And so he has to reel me in from space at times. But um, it'll be it's a kind of a cool moment that, you know, me and him get to share uh, some some comments on and some uh, some advice to some people. I think that's really cool. Hey, listen, one quick thought. You played in the President's Cup, and this is a Ryder Cup year. So now that you've got that President's Cup experience, what would it mean to you to be playing in the Ryder Cup at Whistling Straits? Since everyone says that the Ryder Cup is, you know, 
more nerve wracking than the president's cup. Um, obviously I don't know what that would feel like or if that's true, but, um, it'd be a, a true honor. And, um, you know, I think, I think there's a really good group of guys that's going over to Wilson Straits and, you know, I'd love to be on the team and, and trying to bring that cup back. He is a PGA Tour pro, four-time winner on the PGA Tour, and number six in the World Golf Rankings, number seven in the FedEx Cup standings. Today, he appeared on behalf of Highland. Xander, great to have you back. Great job. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Kelly McCrimmon is my guest. Kelly, it's so good to have you on. How are you? I'm doing real good, Jim. Thanks for having me. Thank you for doing it, Kelly. Great to have you. So Colorado jumped out to that 2-0 lead in the series. Then you go back home. You beat them two straight. How good did it feel to be back in front of your home fans in that raucous house and to get those two wins? Well, home ice was a big part of it for us in game three and four. We've gradually increased our capacity uh, throughout the season. Game three was the first that we'd been at full capacity, so we were... Uh, you know, over 18,000, both uh, game three and game four. And when you look at game three, uh, trailing late in the third, you know, you have to ask yourself when that one's over, we did come back and score twice in 45 seconds to uh, to have a 3-2 win. Uh, the fans are a big part of that. I don't know that you do that in an empty building or uh, or away from home. So it was uh, great to have, uh, you know, full capacity in, uh, in T-Mobile. It's a great home rank. Hey, by the way, one interesting point you just made, and I was going to ask you about the fans, but to that point, I mean, before Game 3, Colorado had won six straight playoff games, and they had not lost in the postseason this year, and they had barely even trailed. They had that lead, as you point out, in the third period. So what did your guys show you in the way they battled back in the third? Well, we needed, you know, I kept uh, thinking to myself as the third period went on when they took the lead, we needed somebody to make a play. We needed somebody to make a play. And, of course, when you get uh, uh, you know, deeper into the playoffs and you're playing really good teams, that's what you need is, uh, is people to step up uh, when, uh, when needed. And Jonathan Marcheseau was able to uh, tie the game uh, for us. Jonathan's had a great series. He had three goals again uh, the next game. And then uh, shortly after uh, he scored to tie the game, the building was, uh, you know, uh, very energized. Max Pacioretty uh, deflected a Nick Holden shot to give us the 3-2 lead, which stood up uh, as the winner. So, um, you know, somebody to make that play, I think, is really what we're looking for. Unfortunately, uh, Jonathan Marshall was able to do that for us. Kelly McCrimmon joining us. Exactly right. Like, you know you need somebody to make a play. Chances are it's going to be that guy. Then the team follows up that Game 3 win with that 5-1 to win, and he had a hat-trick in that game. Like, how huge was he in that situation? And then what do you make of the way the team performed overall in Game 4? <clears throat> well, we played really well in both. Uh, to, to be honest, we played really well in Game 2, which was a 3-2 loss. Uh, to Colorado in overtime. Uh, so we went, down, went home uh, down uh, two games to zero. Obviously, game three was uh, was a huge win to get us uh, back in the series. Uh, game four was probably our most complete game. And uh, in that game, uh, William Carlson's line. So when you look at the makeup of our team, we're in our fourth season. The one, uh, you know, a lot of things have changed, but the one thing that has been a constant uh, since you know, probably two or three weeks into season one was the line of uh, Riley Smith, William Carlson, and Jonathan Marsha. So they uh, played together uh, for the most part entirely uh, all four seasons, and uh, their line really performed well uh, in game two or game four. And, uh, you know, with Marsha's uh, hat trick leading the way. 
Kelly McCrimmon is joining us. You know, Kelly, you mentioned the fans, and I want to get into that because you know what you have, but it's really curious to me to see the way the opposition always reacts to it. As an example, Avalanche head coach Jared Bednar said after the game, quote, it's loud. It's hard to hear anything in there. You can tell by my voice, just talking on the bench, just trying to call the next line. I'm losing my voice. There's a lot of noise in that building. And the reason I mention that is you don't have one of the best fan bases in hockey. You have one of the best fan bases, to me, in all of sports. And when you consider the relationship the team has with the community, it becomes even stronger. Like, how would you describe that relationship and the lift that everybody gets from that crowd? Well, I think you've uh, you've touched on it. It is just incredible, and uh, it's unique. You know, I've been in lots of loud buildings, but just the uh, the energy and the atmosphere and the and the party feel, the vibe uh, that comes out of uh, our building, it's it's really intimate. Uh, the way that the building is uh, is built, it's uh, it's tight. It's a seventeen thousand five hundred person uh, seating capacity. Then what standing room puts us uh, over eighteen, but. Uh, they're on top of you, and uh, and they come to enjoy the game, and it's uh, it's interesting. Uh, we'll oftentimes get fans from uh, the visiting team, and our fans enjoy those people. It's uh, you know they they treat them well, which I don't think uh, always happens when uh, fans go on the road. But it's just a really uh, a really good energy in the building. And and uh, to uh, Jared Bedner's point, you you couldn't talk to the guy beside you. It was uh, it was that loud in there, and. Uh, uh, you know, again, uh, we rode that, and that, uh, that gives our team energy, as you'd expect. We're talking to Kelly McCrimmon, of course. I want to ask you about Mark Stone. He was named the first captain in team history. I know that that's not a decision that was made lightly. And, in fact, the team had had a lot of success without an official captain. So why was it important to give him the C? And then what kind of an impact have you noticed as a result? Well, we had gone without a captain the first three seasons, and you know, that was a little bit uh, almost the identity of our team in the early stages was, uh, you know, we had 23 captains. We had players from all across uh, the National Hockey League that were uh, pushed to the curb by their existing team that came uh, with something to prove. And, and it seemed to really be a, a good dynamic and a good way to have uh, the leadership of those early teams formed. Uh, Derek England obviously was a huge part of our leadership group uh, in the three years that he played. And it was working. I think we could have uh, easily continued that way. But sometimes uh, when you've got a guy you feel is the obvious guy, I think that you need to uh, to validate that person. And Mark has really grown in the role. We expected that he would. He's a player that's uh, very passionate, uh, you know, leads by example, and, uh, and yet is very humble. And, and I didn't, you know, I think he'd put his own boundaries on what level of leadership he could provide wearing an A as opposed to wearing the C. And, you know, for uh, our organization, he's he's done exactly what we uh, hoped he would do uh, since being named captain, and that's provide leadership every night. And, of course, uh, it's the key moments uh, that you need that leadership when things aren't going well for your team or, uh, you know, just a different point in a game or a series now that we're in, uh, that we're in playoffs, you rely on. Uh, that leadership. So he's got a lot of respect from uh, his teammates, and uh, he wants to win. He plays to win. That's what you expect of your leader. We're talking to Kelly McCrimmon, and we'll do so for a couple of more moments. You know, you mentioned the playoffs and where you are at this point. The way they're structured this year, the first two rounds are divisional play, which means you're facing a Colorado team that you're very familiar with. Other people around the league have said there are no secrets at this point in the season. Does it feel that way to you? Is it just strength against strength at this point? It really does. This year, uh, you know, was unique for so many reasons. But the makeup of the schedule, where 
you know, we played seven other teams eight times uh, is, is very unique. Uh, ordinarily, you play, of course, uh, every team in the NHL, and you weighted more in your division and then more in your conference and then only home and away with, uh, with the Eastern Conference. But it, uh, it gave teams a chance to know each other inside out. We played Minnesota in round one, and it was the exact same. We uh, you know, had hard-fought games with uh, Minnesota all season. They're a team that's always given uh, us trouble, so that was a real challenge uh, in the opening round. And then, you know, Colorado is uh, the President's Trophy winner, and they're uh, an incredibly talented, uh, deep team that is, uh, um, you know, dangerous, you know, every uh, every time. They're, they're a threat to score with their skill and their speed. So uh, it is, I think, has helped us that we know the team as well as we do, as opposed to an ordinary year we would play Colorado three times. This year we played Colorado eight times. So, in terms of you know knowing what we can do, knowing what we uh, cannot do, it's been helpful. Hey, listen, really quickly, maybe you answered it, but I was going to say from the outside, it seems crazy. Like even even though the two teams have been on a collision course and we knew this, it still seems pretty crazy to have a second round series between the two teams with the best record in the regular season. So, what's it like for you and the organization to deal with that challenge this early in the postseason? Well, we've known all year if we were going to move out of the Western uh, Division that in all likelihood we were going to have to go through Colorado. So uh, probably, uh, you know, they felt uh, the same, and it's a stiffer challenge than what uh, you'd expect in round two, but it is what it is. So uh, I also believe that uh, playing the best teams makes you better. So Minnesota in round one, I think, helped us be prepared for this series because of the test they gave us. So, uh, you know, uh, maybe for ourselves or Colorado who comes out of this series, maybe it's going to help them for uh, the subsequent round. And then on top of that, Kelly, I would imagine the thinking's got to be in your locker room that they've got to deal with you just like you got to deal with them. He is the GM of the Vegas Golden Knights, and what a great series this is. They're tied up at two games apiece. Vegas at Colorado this evening. Kelly, I really appreciate the conversation, and especially on a game night. Thanks so much for doing that, and good luck. Yeah, you bet, Jim. Thanks very much for having me. Jeff in Southfield. What's up with you, Jeff? Thank you for the fine, Jim. Hey, Jim, I keep hearing how Wells in the 360 is overweight. Hey, Jim, you know what's not overweight? Wells' brain. <laughs> hey, Wells, go to the library and discover books. And after you've read a few, give us a book report on something other than a sandwich. Wells, there's more to life than food. There's a big, wide world out there, Wells. I mean... It's not as big and wide as you, but it's pretty big and wide. Hey, Silk, what's with that HB council member calling you Professor Silkinson? Silk, not only can substitute teachers not call themselves professor, they can't call themselves adults. You're a babysitter, Silk. Hey, Silk, what are you going to call yourself for being on the trailer park advisory board? Senator Silkinson? Silk, the trailer park, was hoping for a guy named Denim, who talks about guns and car engines. Not for a guy named Silk, who talks about charcuterie. Silk, the closest thing to charcuterie in the trailer park is when cockroaches eat cheese whiz. Seriously, Silk, your annual budget can afford saltines or Velveeta, but not both. Silk, this week attempts to delude yourself you're a grown-up isn't going to go well. Bro, you have the word silk tattooed below your belly button. 
And the number one rule of trailer parks is all men must be shirtless. I fear for your life, Silk. And last thing, Jim, hey, much in Indy. Even though you never call the show anymore, I still think of you when I drive. The yellow stripe in the road reminds me of your spine. Hey, Jeff, are you done? Oh, man, this dude's awesome. Hey, I said it. Yeah, I don't play favorites. I'm objective. I'm not going to have any preconceived notions or thoughts going in. That dude's awesome. His delivery, the one-liners. Hey, Jim. Hey, Silk. You think of yourself as an adult. You can't be. You're a babysitter. This dude cracks me the hell up. Like, I'd have this whole conversation. I would have a discussion about what is it about that guy that you don't understand? Or like, what is it about that guy that's not funny to you? That dude is really funny. Really funny. Like, if you don't get that guy, you just don't get it. How can you tell me? HP. Silk bra. What's going on, bra? Hey, Jimmy. How you doing, buddy? Oh, I'm great. Good. Hey, listen, I got two questions for you, and I'll take them off the air. First question is, when you're doing an interview and you ask a guy a question, he says, hey, that's a great question. What does he think? That's not going to be a great question. And two, if you take your perfectly clean car to a car wash and drive it in through backwards, does it come out dirty? Come on. Paul's dog in Buffalo. Doggy dog. Why don't we go to the phones to see what that dog has to say for himself? We've already heard from the fake silk. Let's get the real dog though and make things right. We go to Buffalo. Paul's dog. Hey, Paul's dog. What's up? Thank you, Rich Flores, for getting me on. This is Brawl's dog. Here for my golden ticket. Woo! Jeff in Southfield. Read my name. Watch your mouth. I still have my pair. They're big, but they're brass. Yeah! No. You don't like that call. I don't like that call. Hmm. Not a very good call. All right, so what we have here is a fake silk and Come a fake on. Paul's dog. What we have here is the real hawk getting duped again. Am I right, Mike and Snowbird? Good night!